This podcast is made possible by the donors and members of the show. If you'd like to contribute to the work we're doing, visit the support tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com. We're also able to keep the newsletter email and voicemail going with support from our partners like Joel DeFour and the great people at Earth Tools, located in Kentucky here in the United States. If you're a small-scale professional farmer and permaculture practitioner, or if you follow the work of folks like Jean-Martin Fortier and the Market Gardener, you'll love Earth Tools' complete line of walk-behind tractors, implements, and parts from manufacturers like BCS and Grillo. If you're a gardener, check out their full line of high-quality hand tools, including hoes, shovels, and spades from DeWitt, SHW, Barnell, and more. I chose to partner with Earth Tools because they are owned and operated by a small-scale farmer and his family. With their hands-on experience and understanding the tools we need on our farms and in our gardens, and with affordable pricing, they make high-quality tools accessible to everyone. If you're a gardener and need to pick up some new tools for spring, this is it. Find out more about their complete line of tractors and tools at earthtools.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1702, Reconnection with Place. Today, Stephen Martin, the sacred gardener from Ontario, Canada, returns to continue our conversation about reconnecting with the land, as well as with the traditions and cultures not only of the area we call home, but also with the peoples of that land and the ways of our families. Along the way, we talk about what it means to develop a mindset that tends the wild, and to move away from domineering or colonizing, while also honoring those who came before us. During this interview, you can also hear some of the struggles I'm having as I work to deepen my sense of place. This is an interview about where we live, where we call home, and the cultures that surround us, and how we can get deeper with those connections to people and place that moves us away from a self-centered or anthropocentric worldview. Let's begin with Stephen's involvement at the Orphan Wisdom School, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then Stephen, after our last interview, my friend and brother Eric Chisler listened to that conversation and got in touch with me to let me know that he had had an opportunity to meet you because of attending the Orphan Wisdom School run by Stephen Jenkinson. I was wondering if you might begin with us today by sharing a bit about your involvement in that program. Well, <laughs> kind of one of those funny things, because I'm not too sure why Steve has me there. Over the years, um, he's had me quite a few times, I guess. At some point with each of his groups, he has me in. Uh, it has something to do with... Uh, you know, he's he's quite a a challenging person, I think, for lots of folks to to listen to, you know. He really he pushes. And it's a it's a long, arduous intellectual uh class that he teaches there. And of course more than intellectual, he he's pulling on bigger things. So I used to think at one point it was kind of uh a comic relief or something like that. He'd have me come in for a little bit of, maybe a little bit of lightness, but um, I, I could be uh, over-diminishing to myself. You know, there's a connection um, that both Steve and I have, and it goes way back um, to the earth, and I think when we first met and we first started uh connecting on these things there's a kinship I mean I really feel like uh, Steve's like an older brother you know maybe a mentor 
but definitely like an older brother for me. So um, I, I can't give him enough praise and thanks for having me come to his school and do some teaching, you know, really. And uh, I, I don't know. Again, maybe tricky for me to say exactly what I do there, <laughs> but I give people a, a different uh, view of the earth and you know, maybe a, a way in there of connecting. Because I think he does a lot of work stripping things back to the bone, you know, so that we can kind of start again. And then maybe he's kind of bringing me along just as kind of an example to say, you know, you're not going to become uh, a First Nations person, but in our own way, we can become native to the place where we live. You know, and I've been working on that for 35 years in this area. And although I kind of haven't done too much or been been around too much, um, I have done that. And I think for Steve, he, he probably puts a lot more value on staying in one place and sticking it out than he would, you know, touring around and maybe learning from everybody. You know, different different approaches to learning. And that by having you come in, someone who's been living there for a long time, you can share a perspective from that sense of place? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Steve's a, a teacher of the old ways, so in bringing me in, uh, there's an honoring and there's a holding up of this person, this elder, this teacher. And in that holding up, you know, when we're held up, we got to step up to the plate. Like, we got to really live up to it. If somebody acknowledges us, us, and it's somebody who you respect, then there's got to be, um, it's kind of an amazing thing that actually happens, you know? Like, in our culture, we're very horizontal, right? Like, we're very into this idea of everybody being equal. And, of course, that comes out of inequality and you know, abusive systems and all such things and all that. But in reality, we're not all equal. I mean, in one way we are, of course, but in lots of other ways we're not at all. And so to acknowledge somebody who's come before you and and done the work and put in their time as being above you is very hard for us to bow down people, you know, and when we do bow down to them, you know, like, then we want them to be a guru, we want them to be some kind of exemplar, perfect person, right, but it's not really necessary, because the bowing down isn't really to the person, it's to something bigger than the person that's coming through them, that's what you're bowing down to, and in bowing down to the person, the hope is that it's their responsibility to kind of get out of the way or to elevate themselves or however you want to see it to let those other bigger things come through. And Steve's really good at that, you know, and uh, I appreciate it so much. And it's interesting that you say that about Stephen because I feel that way about what you are doing in the world and the way that you share this and that you're serving as a vessel or conduit for this information and providing a way for others to connect with it. It's all kind of hard for me coming at it from a very kind of Western domineering mindset for many years. And it's only been in the last three or four 
where I've gotten to really see the way that we can use language to talk about things very differently. And one of the pieces that's been on my mind for a while is I have a friend who's a minister, and we've talked about, um, I think it's Genesis 1.26. Many translations say that God gave man dominion over the earth, but that that translation into English of dominion, if you go back to the root of that word, it can also mean something more like a shepherd. Yeah, or stewardship, yeah. I don't really know where I fit in the world, except that I feel where I am in Appalachia is home the mountains and the waters of this region, but I have a kind of this cultural legacy that is one of colonialism, expansion, and then with everything that is happening right now with Native rights, how can I come to a place where I properly honor those people who are the Natives, while also myself establishing kind of a Native mindset at the same time? Does that make sense? Well, I guess there's there's a bunch of questions in there, I suppose. Well, I think it's the, it really is a huge thing what we have come from, you know, and this kind of way of thinking has enabled us to generate incredible technologies and incredible things, you know, and that all has to be acknowledged, right? Like, we wouldn't be talking right now this way, at least, if it wasn't for all those, that kind of mindset. But like any kind of thinking or like any kind of doing, it becomes an addictive thing. And, you know, we've been addicted to this way of thinking for a long, long time, and it's just gotten more and more extreme. And so it's so extreme, like, I think the word autism is really fairly appropriate. Um, Thomas Berry, I think, was the first one to, to use that phrase of our kind of relationship towards nature, and it always really stuck with me. You know, when you read something, you might forget the rest of the book, but there's just one like phrase that the person said, and it crystallized a whole bunch of stuff. And for me, his observation of our autistic state is the thing that you're talking about, that even while you love nature and you get into nature and you do your gardening and all these things, there's still a huge division. And you know, if you're not aware of history and you haven't looked into it a lot, and you would think that that division should be quite easy to cross, that we can step over to the other side quite easily. But I think as it turns out, it's, it's really probably the most difficult task that we have ahead of us as a culture. And it's absolutely where we have to go, you know. I mean, you're feeling it, and, you know, I'm sure thousands of people just like yourself are feeling the same thing that we're starting to realize the extent of our self-centeredness and selfishness. And again, when you're brought up that way, you can intellectually grasp like, ah, I should be this other way or I should do this other thing, but it doesn't mean anything because our intellect is just one part of ourselves. Our programming and our deeper emotional being, that stuff's all, you know, it's malleable, but it was programmed over a long period of time, and it's going to take a long period of time to change these things, both as individuals and as a culture. So for people like Stephen Jenkinson and for myself, you know, it's a bit of a harsh reality, but we know we'll never see the day that we're working towards. Not a chance, you know. I don't even know if my kids will see it. Like, it's a couple generations away if we can get there. Because this untraining of the colonial mind is huge, you know? And 
enough of us have to start to do it that it's the hundredth monkey thing, you know, that it is a beautiful way of being. And of course, it is why there's a whole young contingent of people trying to emulate indigenous people is because they hear it in their words, they see it in their actions, they see it in the beauty of their skills. And so you're trying to emulate it, but you're trying to emulate it from the outside. And so you take on their trappings and, you know, and again, the skills has its place and it's a beautiful thing, but it's the fruit of a bigger tree. So when you just walk along and you pick that fruit up, you know, that's one thing, that's great, you got that thing, that little piece of sweetness, but that piece of sweetness came from a bigger culture and a bigger thing. And really, that's what we have to get to, in, to the inside of, right? So we're the ones producing the apples. We're not just the ones walking along the road picking them up. You know what I mean? I think it speaks to the difference between just taking action, because it's easy just to plant the tree, but having a context for it in a larger system. I mean, from a permaculture perspective, you know, we can design for the tree itself within a food forest design, choosing whether we're going to have a dwarf apple tree or a semi-dwarf or a standard, and where that's going to be and what we can plant around it to support that plant. But then, step back as practitioners and people in a place that there is more than just that garden at stake. There are our friends and our neighbors and our family and our community, and it just goes out larger and larger, and that... Some of my friends and I were talking a couple days ago at lunch, is that we seem to be spending so much time being active and being busy, and not really having the opportunity to sit down and get to know people in places really well. There's just this kind of feeling for me right now of a, a gap that I'm trying to step across to move from where I am in kind of this mechanistic sense into that larger cultural shift. I just don't know where to get there right now, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I've, I really kind of am really feeling focused on in the last few years is that get to practice this. Get to practice this thing of working with divinity, of working with this incredible being that we're living within. Get to practice it in the garden. Just an incredible thing. Like, yeah, you can practice it out in the bush and you can practice it with people, but it's almost like the garden's made for us to practice it. So, you know, again, just to back down your, your analogy there, so you're, you're planting, you know, these things to make a composition of sorts in the garden that's going to work. You know, this is dwarf, and this is creeping, and this is, you know, a ground cover, and, and so on and so on. Now, okay, this is, these are your plans, right? And this is how life works, right, is we kind of got to have our plans. But again, life and reality is not a blank slate, so it's when we start moving forward with our plans, that's where we get to practice, right? Because it's so easy, because we have so much power, for one thing, technologically and otherwise, it's so easy for us to just dominate and push through and not even look twice to the side as we're pushing through with our plan, you know? But each of those beings that you're introducing to the garden the garden space itself, all the trillions of beings in the soil, the spirits of that space, they should also all have a say 
and how this plan is going to go down. And you should be planting for them because it's their space as much as planting for yourself. You know, and if we can't even pull this off in our gardens, <laughs> then there's no way we're going to be able to pull it off in our life because life surprises you with these things real quick, and you've got to make your choices real quick. And of course, when we're so trained to lean towards the dominance and the conquest and all that stuff, there has to be a lot of unlearning before you can get to a place where you can be responsive to the earth in a, in a harmonious way rather than a, a kind of, um, you know, knee-jerk destructive way. Which, you know, gardening, again, is just such a brilliant place to see all this stuff happening, you know? I talk a little bit about it in the book there, and, uh, just in terms of examples of myself having a real knee-jerk reaction and, and just going to the extreme to try to eradicate something because I paid for this fruit tree or, you know, something like that. I felt I had the right to do it. But, you know, the, the kind of moral or the, the theme that comes out in the story is that basically it was all for naught. You know, in the end, the other trees just did just as well, the ones that weren't sprayed, maybe even better. And so, you know, it's, it's an ongoing, really beautiful dynamic that we get to interact with. And again, you can do it on your land on a bigger scale, and you can do it on just land, you know, crown land or or parks or whatever, where you're honoring things, you know. Uh, years and years ago, I, I had this friend, and she was a real plant person, and I, you know, loved her for that reason, and we connected and stuff. But I got so I would never take her for a walk in the, book, in the bush, because if I ever pointed something out, she'd either take it then or she'd come back and get it. So it's the same kind of thing that applies when you're foraging or wildcrafting or anything in the bush, that there, there has to be a deeper respect, a deeper acknowledgement of what's there and that you're stepping into somebody else's house and you're stealing something if you take something. So you better make some offerings and you better you know, make some prayers and, and make some beauty to give back to that, that place. I think of my friends who are foragers that when they go out and harvest, that they will take only what they need, but they will also work on, if it's the right time of year, to divide roots or spread seeds. So they're helping to tend to next year's harvest as part of that process. Well, this is it. And, you know, this is real obvious stuff. But because we're coming into it as novices and people who aren't maybe so experienced are just like, oh, this free food, right? And... <laughs> So they give her, and then, you know, they come back either the next year or the next year, and there's no fiddleheads left or something like that because they actually pick them all, you know, and the plants can't regenerate if they have no fronds left. So, uh, yeah, it is uh, something that has to be done. That, that's part of the wild crafting, right? It's not just called harvesting because there's a craft element involved where things are picked at the right time, they're done in such a way that they're going to promote themselves or regenerate, um, you know, by themselves. And when you were talking about plans and life, there were two things that 
kind of came to mind for me. One is something that a friend of mine always says is that life is what happens when you're planning to do something else. And I think really speaks not so much that life is is completely random, but that there's a lot more to it than any way that we might individually organize what it is that we're doing. And, you know, the interactions that we have with other people and life as a whole. And the other with that, when you're talking about gardening and kind of like this unlearning and unwinding from the dominant culture, what has your process been like over 35 years because of having so much experience with it? I don't know if I talked about this at all the last time, but I do talk about it a bit in the book, which is that I was a forager before I learned how to garden. I think that's really kind of the basis of my whole take is that and she taught me directly how to work with the plants and how to work with the wild plants. And as soon as I started to garden, uh, my initial garden was with uh, somebody who I was living with at the time, and she was like old-school farming stock. And so they didn't even know what organic was, right? They just gardened with, I mean, they were gardening organically, but it was old-school. And... Um, you know, as soon as we started to get into it, as a forager, looking at the gardening, it was incredibly destructive. Like, I just couldn't believe the level. <laughs> I mean, you talk about conquest. It's complete takeover of a certain territory. And, the, you know, the violence of the rototilling and all these different things and just the... You know, it was, it was just one thing after another, the straight rows and the story, as the story goes, it's like, okay, we grew corn, we grew lots of lovely things, and then in the fall, raccoons started to come in, about a third of my corn disappeared in one night, and had I had a gun, I would have thought out and killed that raccoon when it came back the next day. I was furious and super possessive. Whereas as a forager, you never experienced any of those things, you know? There was always kind of a friendly game kind of atmosphere going on between you and the animals of who would get to what first. And there was always these lovely things, like you always left some at the end, you know? They would leave some for me, or I would leave some for them. And so, again, we're not aware of it, but as soon as, as, soon as I started gardening, I fell into a historic paradigm that's being practiced for at least a couple thousand years. So you'd think it's a small thing to be able to step out of it, but of course it's not. It's huge. And that's why something like permaculture has become so huge, because it actually is trying to represent something that's outside of that box. And it's partially got there by taking things from indigenous people, you know, a lot of Mollison's original ideas did come from indigenous practices, right? And it's also just people struggling to get out of the box. But I guess the thing that I, I'm so fascinated by, because of course I came across permaculture in the 90s or whatever and have worked with a lot of those design elements and thoughts and stuff, is that very often, even though it's a very different way of growing, you still get caught in the exact same mentality, you know, yeah. which is, it's all about production and it's all our space. And as, as you said earlier in the interview, that it has no relationship 
to the surrounding land in particular. There's no sense of, um, you know, the hedgerow or the, that, that in-between space that's honored as, as, a, as a wild space that you just let it go. And then there's kind of your space, which is more domesticated. And then on the other side of the hedgerow, there's the full-on wild space, right? It's kind of how it should be and how it's been for most of our existence here on the planet. But we kind of don't even know about that stuff. We already forgot so long ago. And the very last of it you can see disappearing now because people want every little fraction of an acre more to grow their GMO corn or whatever. So they're plowing out all the hedgerows now. At least that's what's happening up around my area here. It's kind of like there was a, a little ancient remnant there that people didn't even know why they were leaving the hedgerows, but they were, and it was part of the deal, right? But we completely forgot about it. So it's a long and rambling answer <laughs> to your question. That I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, even after being a forager, learning from elders and spending years and years learning skills in the bush, I still immediately got trapped in that agricultural conquest paradigm as soon as I started to do it. You know, so it really is things like permaculture and uh, the indigenous uh, succession agriculture that I'm promoting. And these things are, are ways that maybe, maybe, you know, you kind of start to see the light that there is actually a different way of doing these things. And uh, that's, that's it. It's, it's been a long journey, you know, and I'm really, really, in the last few years, things have really crystallized for me in terms of the importance of teaching it, I guess, really, you know. Because it's one thing to be doing it myself and all hidden away back in the bush, but it's another thing to stick my neck out and, and really say some things about it. And, yeah. It's fascinating for me because the story that you relayed about kind of the game that you would play with, with the other-than-human life that was around you when you were foraging as opposed to like the agricultural mindset is interesting because when I was gardening at my earlier home, that my like zone one vegetable garden, when I would see the groundhogs there, I wanted to reach for my rifle immediately. Yet out in like my zone two slash three kind of area... Um, where my elderberry was, I'd walk out with my children and they'd be like, are those ready for us to harvest yet? And like, we have two or three days until they're ready for us. They're not quite ripe, but now we'll be playing the game to see whether or not the deer get to them before we do. And that's exactly what would happen. If, if I missed it by two or three days, the deer would wind up eating most of the berries and we'd only get maybe a quarter of what we might if we had harvested that first day when we walk out. But it didn't feel like the same kind of loss. And it's strange the way that that feels and to have had that kind of experience that you were sharing with us. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's, it makes sense, you know, to have these different zones and, and all that. You know, I think I mean, the, the only problem I always have with the zone thing is that we're always in the center still. You know, we're always still the most important thing and then the zones go out from us. So again, you know, you could maybe think about it in a little bit different way. But to your point of uh, the groundhogs, you know, I, I think I might have said this in the last interview too. I mean, there, there are ways of working with groundhogs, and they are pretty tasty. So 
you know, it is a reciprocal relationship, and you can do some extra planting and create some extra space for them, and then, you know, maybe they become a meal once once a summer or something like that, and uh, that that's part of the deal, right? I mean, we have to work with everything, right? You can't just kind of say, okay, this is... I mean, where I am here, we have so much predation. I literally probably wouldn't get any food if I didn't have dogs and I didn't have other ways of of working with things sometimes. You know, and sometimes that might mean killing something. But again, it's not an absolute. You know, there has to be a process for me. And I talk to the little friends first, you know, like we have a good talk. This year there was a porcupine who was really, really enjoying my pears as they were coming on. And the the real problem is the pear branch would already be bent right over with the weight of the pears. And then as soon as the porcupine would climb up it, snap, right? Mm-hmm. And so this went on for a few nights and I'm noticing all these you know, pear trees that I've grown for 14 years and grafted them all and started them from seedlings and all that, and their branches are all getting busted one night at a time. I mean, the fruit's one thing, but then the tree's a whole other thing. And so I knew where she would be and what time she would be there roughly, and so I went out and I caught her. And I had a barrel with me because we've done this dance before where it's time to move. But I didn't put her in the barrel. I gave her a real stern talking to, and, you know, we had a good long discussion, and I walked her off, and that was the last I saw of her for the season. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessary to kill her, and it wasn't necessary to trap her and move her. And uh, so again, you know, to acknowledge things and realize that they have an intelligence too. And yes, they may not speak English, but that doesn't matter. Right? They can totally read everything from the inside of your language, from the inside of your tone, just like animals, right? They know exactly what you're talking about. You know, and if you're thinking, oh, this animal doesn't understand me, then of course it won't. You have to really be connected with what you're saying, and then, the, and then animals will understand you, right? And that's what I've really enjoyed about our previous conversation, the one today, is that it's really not a it's not a hard set deterministic conversation and it's really helping me to understand where we could take these ideas of permaculture and rewilding and natural farming and all of these things that have kind of led to the the moment now and how they could be integrated together into something different as i keep thinking that all of these ideas that we have right now aren't going to be the ones that make the change they're just the tools that we're using in the moment and that eventually it'll be you know our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren or the descendants that we'll never meet will be using something to be bringing about constructive change that we've never even thought of for sure and you know i'm not even sure it will have to do with innovation and tools right mm-hmm. it'll have to do with thinking and perception and yeah maybe that in turn will kind of develop different tools and stuff but it's exactly my thinking there scott too is that we've had these tools and we've known how to use them for a long time this is not the problem that we don't have enough technical innovation or tools. 
the problem is definitely in our minds, right, and the way we think about things. And of course, you know, with the pop culture and the way everything is, you're working against the grain, right, to try to get people to turn around. I mean, <laughs> one of the funny things about Steve's school and, you know, uh, forgive me if, if this in any way seems like a negative thing, but I've actually had students of his, his say, I never would have signed up for this if I'd known what was coming, right? Right. Because you're actually going to have to change your life. It's not just something that, again, you're picking up on the side of the path one of those apples and sticking it in your pocket. He wants you. He's demanding that you become the tree. And that's hard work, right? It's much easier to just stay at home and watch Netflix and whatever. Like, it's it's hard, ongoing, never-ending work for us. It's a long journey, and nobody would sign up because it's not necessarily a happy one, you know? No, it's it's moving towards something that's uh, I don't know. Happy's such a, a kind of <laughs> a weak word, but it's moving towards something that's more fulfilling. There's absolutely no doubt about that, you know. Um, but all of these things are are they're hard choices, you know. And this year, I don't know if you knew this, Scott, but I'm starting a school here. So we've offered workshops for, you know, 20 years or more. And this is a way to kind of take it to a deeper place. And and this is exactly what the school is about, is it's providing a continuity, it's providing a community, it's providing teachers and elders and people who have been through it so that I can walk with people over a longer period of time to bring them there, you know, to bring them with me. Um, Because a lot of the times in the workshops, you know, we do lots of cool stuff. We do all these skills and amazing things, but it's kind of like somebody waving at you from across the field. They're kind of going, hey, look, there's cool stuff over here. You know, you could do this. It's a little bit different. Like the school, the idea is to really take people by the hand and, and take it from the start, you know, literally from the muck up, you know. So, and it won't be easy. I'm looking forward to it because it, it will provide me with a challenge too, right, is to really get deeper and not worry so much about people's feelings. If, if you know, part of the stripping down is people are going to get upset. They're not going to like it. And, you know, I do this anyways. I'll just be doing it more in the school. (laughs) And so, you know, there is that whole thing that you always want to make people happy and be approved and all that stuff. And I have that too, just like everybody else. But then there's this bigger thing that's kind of tapping me on the shoulder saying, come on, you know, get to it, buddy. you got stuff to say. And, yeah, sure, maybe they don't want to hear it, but you're going to say it anyways. So it's quite exciting I, uh, after all these years of kind of doing more or less one-offs, you know, mm-hmm. where people will come and maybe they even come back a few times, but eventually they take all of our workshops and they're like, okay, well, I'll see you. I'd like to keep learning from you, but I can't do any more workshops. So, 
and so really that's how the schools kind of come about is from from that and from people asking for it for you know over the years kind of going how can i how can i get into those deeper levels you know i need to see you more i need to be able to talk to you i need to be able to be here more you know because we absorb these things from people's bodies right so we have to be around them you can't just learn something like this online now I'm learning more and more that there's a lot to be said for the time that we spend together with one another face to face and really being able to experience the body language, to witness that raising of an eyebrow or a nodding of a head when you're in agreement with someone or all of that that allows for a really deep human experience with another person. Huge. Oh, it's huge. Eh? You can't even really begin to to define that because it's a, it's a, it's a pool that we're we're supposed to be part of, right? We're supposed to be teaching and learning and sharing that way. So it just has a, a whole level of uh, fulfillment and, and I think, effectiveness that however fantastic reading books are or watching things on the computer or whatever, you know, it, it's still only one kind of dimension, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, well, arguably, there's at least 10 dimensions here. So, you know, we can talk about the raising of an eyebrow or the looking of an eye, but maybe it's all the inner stuff that's going on with the ancestors that are surrounding you, with all the teachers that are surrounding you, and all these things interacting with that person's ancestors and teachers, and all these things that we don't even see that are really the thing that makes it so fulfilling right? It's not just us coming together. When we come together, we're, we're the host, right? There's a whole bunch of other beings that are traveling with all of us. I think about one of my earliest mentors when I was eight years old, introducing me to physics and chemistry and talking science. And then someone who was an education major in her first or second year when I was young, teaching me mathematics and some of those things, but also the time that my father would spend with me going to parks and hiking or out to walk the fields of the farm that he grew up on. And it's interesting to think about my life holistically in that kind of a framework, to think of all those who came before that helped me to be the person who I am right now in this moment. And just that something as simple as this conversation comes from all of that. But so often I don't know that I I recognize it or realize how many people and how many experiences have helped me to become the person who I am and how their stories and their legacies come through in me now through the things that I'm doing. Yeah, it's quite an amazing thing, eh? You know, it's such a small sense of self that we have, really, you know. That's kind of the irony of it is we're so focused on ourselves, but we've made ourselves so small because, of course, what we are is, as we were just talking about, it's it's the very, very tip of this long, long chain of ancestors, right? And we're the result of it all. They brought us to this place. No, so this is the thing is that, you know, this is where the whole ancestral feeding of the ancestors and, and uh, living with the ancestors comes in is because when you really, really think about it for just a second even, it's so incredible, right? Hundreds and hundreds of generations of people 
all connected to us right now. And then there's the kind of the lateral thing that, you know, thoughts and ideas and concepts and feelings, it does seem like these things to a large degree are disembodied, that they kind of move around. And so, you know, it moves into my head and then out of my head and into your head and into a whole bunch of other people's heads, right? And again, we just have such a small sense of ourself and and just to flip it back to the garden thing is this really is where this whole practicing thing with your garden comes into is to really realize that you are your garden. Everything in it is you and everything you you do to it, you're doing to yourself. And so we have that reciprocal relationship between ourselves and the land and the plants and animals and just our entire local biosphere? Well, that's it. I mean, on the one level, it's biological, and there is tons of reciprocal physical exchanges going on. But on the other hand, we are just one thing. There is no separation. We are what we're looking at. We've been very much taught this thing of separation. And so there has to be a kind of an unteaching of it. Just like when you're teaching people... Uh, like young people, you know, you get them to grasp something intellectually first, and then over the years they embody that thing. And now we have to kind of do it in reverse. have to kind of stop isolating ourselves in our mind constantly. And so when we have either a brilliant thought or a scary thought or anything like that, don't be so attached to it that it's yours maybe it came from your neighbor or maybe it came from somebody on the other side of the planet, right? Because, again, in these other dimensions, there's no space between things necessarily. So as soon as somebody thinks something, you're thinking it too. Because that's like a little sprout coming out of the ground. It's a living thing. It's part of this bigger thing that we all are. And so even our thoughts and our emotions and all these things that we think are so private and individual, not at all, you know? And as with our last conversation, you've left me with quite a bit that I'm going to need to sit with. It's good. Glad to hear. And we didn't talk about gardening at all. (laughs) That's perfectly all right, because I I re-released an episode earlier today, which is one of the the first really transformational conversations that I had, which was with Dave Jackie in 2013, which really started to break me away from the landscape-only approach to permaculture. Because for so long, with Mollison's Designer's Manual being like the permaculture textbook, the focus was really on like the first 13 chapters, which were all about design and the landscape. And in that conversation with Dave three years ago, he kind of broke me out of the landscape model and got me to start thinking about, you know, social systems and economics and community and culture. And that's really where I've been kind of working on in the last three years or so. But it's been in the last six months with the podcast, my first conversation with you, some of the ongoing dialogue with Peter Michael Bauer from Rewild Portland and some other chats kind of off the air have really been pushing me further and further towards really kind of unwinding this separation that I have and this very deterministic perspective. But it's really hard and very challenging 
to work through, you know, 37 years of my own story and then the generations that come before me because of my father having taught me as a farmer. You know, he grew up in that way and his father, my grandfather, was a farmer. And so they had a particular relationship with the land that was imparted on me, which was about extraction and now trying to move more and more towards relational interactions. It's entirely new and personally challenging. Well, good. And, you know, when you talk about your grandfather, too, I can't help but think, you know, that even though, like, we've kind of formed this fairly kind of nasty view of any kind of any kind of monoculture, you know, extractive kind of agriculture, and yeah, sure, that's true, but we also have to go back to that, those people, and if not your grandfather, then maybe his father, um, and just kind of really realize that they did have a different relationship with the land and it was deeper and they knew things that we'll never know just because they grew up with it and they lived there constantly with it you know so i think acknowledging that your grandfather is still with you and how important it was what he did on the land you know so rather than seeing it as a holding back thing, to just, you know, really bow your head to him, realize he's still with you, and that, you know, as you're learning, he's, he's supporting it, right? Like, he knows on some other level, as you're connecting, he's connecting. Mm-hmm. And so even though it was not his way, and he would never have found it himself, I uh, don't think that there's some part of him that doesn't know what's going on, you know? Anyways, just just an extra thought there. No, I appreciate it because it's still it's very easy to to turn introspection deeply inward, and just a little change in thought can completely tie things together and wrap them up and snowball them in a way that can be very hard to unpack later. And so I appreciate that reflection with you. I'm certainly going to want to follow up with you here in a couple of months once the the school has started and you've been putting those programs in place and to hear what you're learning through the process. But I really am thankful that you would take the time with me again to come back on and have this conversation and continue to push the edge of what it means to practice permaculture and to find wild relationships. But before we bring this to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I think uh, my partner shared this with you that we're going to do a little tour down into the States uh, the Eastern Seaboard. So uh, I think we have one gig lined up in Virginia. And I think actually, thank you, Scott, you might have uh, bounced some some names of some folks that we should probably try to connect with mm-hmm. on that little tour. And I'm going to be releasing uh, the second book, which is kind of like the sister part of the first book, sister to it, uh, which is just called Sacred Gardening. And uh, hopefully we'll get that out in the new year. In January. Well, please let me know where the tour is going to be so I can let folks know if you have some public lectures or other workshops or engagements during that journey so that people can come out and meet you and learn more about what it is that you're sharing with us. That would be great. Thank you so much, Scott. And thanks for having me again. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm glad to do it. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. And that was Stephen Martin. You can find out more about him and his work, as well as the Sacred Gardener School, at thesacredgardener.ca, or by the link in the show notes. I've also included a link to Returning to Eden, Polyculture Gardening with Stephen Martin, 
an event during Stephen and his family's East Coast tour, as was mentioned in our conversation. Returning to Eden will be held at Montfair Resort Farm in Corsay, Virginia, on February 5th from 1.30 to 4 p.m. Stepping away from this interview, I'm still left working on my own journey of reconnection. I've spent a lot of time reading the academic works of David Orr and David Sobel and these pieces that pull from an environmental education and academia about what we can do to help students and others live where they are and have a complete and holistic connection with the history of the land and the people. But after having lived in three different places over the last year, even though they're all within central Pennsylvania, only now do I feel like I've landed again and am comfortable and stable enough to keep to walk around and to get to know not only the human side of things, the local businesses that I'd like to spend more time at and frequent walking through the streets of the city of Carlisle that I now call home, as well as wandering around my home and looking for plants and animals and what's growing here, for where the water flows. And as I do so, to dig into the history and to find out whether or not Carlisle is a place where the Susquehannock once lived. And what can I do to find the Susquehannock if they were the peoples that were here and more about their stories and the tales of the land before Europeans arrived? And then to continue that story through the Europeans and the history of this land. I don't even know if the place where I live right now was once farmland before it was developed into a complex of flats. Even though I've pulled the Google Maps to look at everything that's here and to see it from a bird's eye view, how to take all of that information and make it personal. And that desire to be in one place, to create and call home, has me looking to stay here. Though for a long time I'd wanted a project in the city of Harrisburg. Now that I'm here, can I? Should I stay here? I don't know. It's still part of this journey that I, and I'm sure many of you are on. So if there's any way I can help you on your path to reconnection, to help you find the resources that you need to know more about where it is that you are, get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.